Hello everyone, welcome to the Talking Pharmacy podcast where we catch up on developments in pharmacy over the last week. My name is Richard Thomas, I'm the editor of Pharmacy Magazine. Joining me on the pod this week are Rob Darricott, editor of P3 Pharmacy, Arthur Walsh, editor of Pharmacy Network News, and Neil Trainus, editor of Independent Community Pharmacist. Now, believe it or not, this is our 20th edition of the pod, 20 episodes, and it's a good one. We've got all our regular features, Good Week, Bad Week, any other business, and our interview guest this week is PSNC boss Simon Deeks, and you can listen to what England's chief negotiator has to say later in the pod. But before we kick off with Good Week, Bad Week, some reaction to last week's pod. Now, if you recall, my Good Week nomination last week was virtual healthcare, following some research that purported to show that the public was largely in favour of digital discussions with a healthcare provider. Well, this provoked quite the response on Twitter, and I'll read out just some of the comments. Uh, first one, I really need to challenge this notion that patients love the new way of working with their GPs. This is emphatically not my observation particularly in deprived areas. Remote consultations are despised by many and it's time someone said so. Another comment, community pharmacy teams are relentlessly getting the brunt of patient anger at their inability to contact their clinicians, prescriptions not issued with no reason given, receptionists living up to their old reputation. I'm upset at the tacit acceptance that there seems to be that remote is now the new normal. Uh, Another comment, Um, my anger has actually morphed into calm contempt. It's the gross injustice and unfairness. I work on Saturdays, mostly emergencies, seeing GPs or seeing patients that GPs can't or don't access, 111 referrals, rashes, cancerous moles, septic bites, etc. And and one more comment, Um, this has caused a lot of resentment and disillusionment from patients about GPs not seeing them face to face. Many patients giving up, um, not getting their serious conditions checked out, and the elderly in particular feeling that they have been seriously let down. And there were comments from Tony Schofield, Harpreet Kara, and Diane Ball. So, strong words there, really. Arthur, you've been following up this story this week. Um, Are you getting a, a similar reaction from readers and listeners? Indeed, yes. It seems to be a big, big issue, and we do plan to do a lot of reporting on it. Um, I think the relationship between pharmacies and GPs can be quite dysfunctional, you know, in normal times. But it seems like in COVID, that has just been exacerbated to a big degree. And, um, you know, I've had like a lot of reports from pharmacists saying that um, patients are coming in for blood pressure checks or diabetes, which, of course, the pharmacy has to do for free. And um, I've had one person say to me that the GPs then have the cheek to phone up and ask, have they done it properly? Um, it's it, so it's causing big big problems for our readers and I think there's also going to be a big story here about the impact on patients particularly as you said elderly patients and people in deprived communities I think it's a <coughs> could be a big big problem that hasn't really been unearthed yet yeah uh, Neil what are ICP readers telling you well I, I just just interesting some of the remarks that you read out Richard um, particularly the first one I think was the first one um, you know, online remote consultations—they're not viable or they're not popular. Nobody wants to do them. Um, I'm not sure about that. I mean, I, and if you look at independent pharmacy in particular, you know, it, it's struggling for its its very survival. Many of them are. You know, they need to have another string to their bow, and it's not all about people coming into the pharmacy face to face. It's just you know, if you're relying on even if, even if you're providing good quality services, you need to be able to reach people 
And we know that fight independents are, uh, are, are situated in areas where they can actually get to hard to reach people, you know, homeless people, drug addicts, you know, these really, really hard to reach uh, sectors of our society. But they, you need to have another string to, to, to the bow. And, and I, I would strongly disagree with that first comment, you know, and I, and I would hope that independents um, don't have that attitude. The ones that I, the ones that I've noticed on Twitter talking about it, and the ones that I've spoken to, don't have that attitude. You know, indeed, as some of them are actually rolling out uh, online a lot of the online stuff, getting involved. I think one that springs to mind is Sunil Kochar at uh, Kent LPC with the online smoking cessation uh, uh, service, which is just just one example, but a brilliant service. So, yeah, they have to engage with this. And I know there's that other which Arthur mentioned about having to be paid for it we don't want to be doing anything for free and and i agree we all agree i think with simon jukes and and the pharmacy shouldn't be doing things for free they should be getting remunerated and paid um but i think independence um as a as a sector has to put itself forward and say look we are willing to do this it's not a case of we don't want to do it because if if that's the attitude then you might as well pack up and go home you online is absolutely vital particularly as we move forward not just in the pandemic, but beyond the pandemic. I suppose there's there's two strands to this, though. And, and Rob, let's let's pick this up with you. I mean, you've got the um, you know our pharmacists willing to embrace virtual healthcare on the one hand, and yet also you've got GPs seem to be deflecting um, a lot of activity pharmacies way, which is unplanned and, and unfunded, of course, at the moment. So is something missing from this this virtual healthcare conversation that we're having? Uh, Richard, I think there is something missing, and I, I I don't know what what level the conversation needs to be had, but it seems to me that this is either an unintended consequence, or an entirely predictable outcome, from what happens when you start to uh, operate in a slightly different way, and we know that before the pa- take the pandemic out of it for a moment, we know that um, in healthcare generally GPs were under an incredible amount of pressure. Uh, demand was rising, etc., etc., and so we have a kind of shock to the system, and people have to do things differently. And the overspill to that appears to be um, pushing uh, things that they might otherwise have done or had the practice nurse do. I think in a lot of these cases, um, pushing those out to pharmacy because during the pandemic, uh, pharmacy has shown itself to be. I've not necessarily shown itself to be more willing, but it's been noticeable to general practice that pharmacy can do some of these things. Now, the thing that's missing appears to be a conversation about do we collectively, do we society, do we health system managers recognise these things as a valid thing to be happening? And if so, what do we feel about that? And how do we therefore ensure not only that pharmacy can and is willing and wants to do these things but is able to do them in a in a planned way rather than have people as Arthur says you know ringing up later and saying did you do that right um so I it's an interesting question as to whether that conversation is being had by anybody um because clearly it's a you can't put the genie back in the bottle now it's out there and these things are going to continue and they're going to be more become more and more of a burden for our community pharmacy colleagues. And of course, if, if you do it well, it's just going to happen even more, isn't it? That's the problem. Can I put something to you, Rob? I mean, um, and, you know, as we move forward with, uh, you know, virtual healthcare, remote uh, new ways of working, do you, do you think from what you've uh, uh, sensed in the, in the, in, in, the multiple sector, you know, particularly, do you think the multiples are more comfortable 
um, sort of with virtual healthcare and remote work ways of working than they are perhaps with face to face working. I mean, in other words, do you think you know gen- your general sense would it be that CCA members are more would prefer perhaps a, an online remote way of working rather than the face to face side of things? I mean, the short answer, Neil, is I don't know. Um, but my sort of cons- slightly considered answer, given you just asked me this question, I wasn't expecting it, is what, why would they? Because, you know, their interest as well, I think, is in having people come through the, come through the pharmacy. And there's never, I don't think there's ever been a, a, a clear move to say we don't, we don't want to move people online. Uh, one thing I would say about large companies generally is that they they might not be the first to do something and they normally take a little bit longer. But if they're going to go down that route, then they will go down it uh, in a sort of planned way at a time of their choosing. But I don't I, I can't really see right now that they're going to be particularly keen to move down in that direction. They, they've got they're as established in bricks and mortar as, as anybody else and, and are operating in small communities just like independents are. So why would they? Yeah, I take Neil's argument that, you know, digital is here, or virtual is here, and pharmacies have to get with it. But like our readers also seem to be reporting that there are still large parts of the population that are going to be left behind if that is, you know, your mainstay policy. And that's probably going to be the case for another, you know, 10, 20 years. I mean, the only reason I asked that question um Specifically, the only thing I had in mind was that, you know, and this, I'm not painting, painting, tarring the entire multiple sector with the same brush, but in terms of boots, I think there's been a lot about boot stores, a lot of them being neglected. You know, the physical bricks and mortar stores, looking at some of them looking pretty shabby, not you know, a bit run down. You know, we've heard things about the investment Walgreens Boots Alliance want to, want to perhaps not put into the, you know, the boots, the bricks and mortar stores. And that just entered my mind as perhaps being maybe there's more of a focus there towards the online kind of you know approach rather than the you know the physical the physical face to face approach. But that's I'm not making a general the generalisation in terms of the multiple industry. But can you see where I'm coming from? It's I can see I can see where you're coming from. But if if there is, I don't think it's very obvious yet. Certainly not obvious to me. I don't know whether it's obvious to anybody that that's the direction that um, a and other multiple is moving in. I don't see I don't see that at all. I mean, you, multiple or independent, you know, we 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 work within a bricks and mortar model. That the the trick is to try and integrate an element of, of of digital and virtual into that. That's we're a long way to go from that. I think the more pertinent point at the moment, and as Rob raised, is how do you kind of integrate this across systems that you manage demand and you uh, reward it appropriately, rather than pharmacies being stuck with a lot of unplanned, unfunded activity, like I said, that then GPs think they're not doing well anyway. That needs to be looked at. It needs to be a, a much broader conversation. But it's clearly an issue for our readers right at the moment. And it seemed that the, the COVID pandemic mm. kick-started it all off. So um, it's a very interesting subject. We'll be watching it closely uh, over the coming weeks and months. I've got a final thought, Richard, actually. <coughs> um. It seems to me that uh, one of the particular challenges pharmacies got is that historically in talking about the future and how things might be arranged and, and, and whether you get paid for it or not, has been an entirely national conversation. Um, certainly how pharmacies organise itself and where the priorities have, have, have lain. And we, 
I mean, if you think back to the to the webcast we had, you know, a week or so ago, we were particularly reflecting there on the the importance of local relationships in, um, you know, going forward. And this is one of the challenges, isn't it? If you if you've not had a culture of saying we need local um, contractors or we need contractors at all sorts of levels to be showing leadership and being part of the gang that's trying to promote community pharmacy to do X, Y and Z. And it would be great to have a, a clarification and an agreement on what X, Y and Z were right now. Then you'd have people who are already prepared to have these conversations when these sort of issues started to happen. You know, the NHS has been moving in a more local, local way for, for a decade or more. And yet we, we don't have a, uh, a real plan for how uh, community pharmacy, community pharmacists and community pharmacy owners, operators, contractors can have conversations with the kind of people that they have to do business with. Increasingly, we're seeing it now they have to do business with at a local level. That's a huge gap and it's not fixed very quickly. But it definitely needs to be fixed. Yeah, I agree with that. <clears throat> So that's a that's a really good discussion to start this week's pod. So, um, but we move on to good week, bad week now, and let's start with bad week for a change. Uh, Rob, who's had a bad week for you? I think it's a a bad week for anybody who thinks that the um, the way the way forward with Brexit is this is the sunny uplands because we're now starting to see some real detail coming out about what's likely to happen. There's new, there's news in the papers today that Michael Gove is spending you know, most of his time currently as a minister preparing for no deal. And I had a little thing popped into my inbox over the last 24 hours talking about running clinical trials in a post-Brexit Europe. And, you know, absolutely fascinating. Some of the things that um, clinical trials managers will have to do um, if we end up with a no deal. And it, it's what, there's one or two things in here that I hadn't really thought about. But if the active, for example, if the active substance and finished products coming from a UK based manufacturing site um, are being used in clinical trials in Europe, then they may appear to be that may then be considered to be third country importation of products into the EU. And that obviously works in both directions. And then there's a whole list of things that clinical trials operators would have to do if we end up with a no deal that just puts huge barriers in the way of, of you know, things that have been going on um, and increasingly in this country going on. Uh, and I gather we're one of the countries that leads the world in clinical trials management. Um, so, you know, not a great week as, as more sort of detail comes out of exactly how firms are going to have to contort themselves to manage in a, in a, in a way when, when the UK is outside the EU and there appears to be no real political will to even agree arrangements with various um, organisations inside the EU that will have any kind of alignment whatsoever. And I'm thinking here in particular of the MHRA and the European Medicines Agency. You know, if we don't end up with any kind of vague agreement about recognition of, of, of each other's uh, regulatory frameworks, then, you know, there's huge extra costs in here and the UK might might not be seen as such a great place to do clinical trials. Yeah, the, the detail really is coming out now, isn't it? As we, we look to be heading to a, a kind of no deal arrangement, but, you know, things may change. But that was an interesting email uh, about clinical trials. Just one of many, I'm sure, that we're going to be getting over the next few weeks. Um, Neil, bad week for you? Well, my bad week is, um, I suppose it could really fall into 
good week or bad week. I've gone for bad week because uh, the intention is very good, but I think the timing uh, not so great. And and uh, you might, you know, I think you may have heard that the PDA did contact the GPHC um, a few weeks ago to ask uh, Duncan Rudkin whether the regulator intended to investigate the lack of. COVID infection reporting, the occupational infections. Uh, um, why are the GPHC not investigating this lack of, uh, of reporting from owners and employers? And the GPHC did write back um, to the PDA. We've seen the letter. Uh, and they say that they will raise awareness amongst pharmacy employers of their legal, legal obligation to report occupational COVID infections. And they will do so through their inspections and contact with the pharmacy team. Uh, and that letter was sent on August the 19th. Um, and that's all very well, and we all hope that they follow up on that. Um, but the obvious question is, why not sooner? I mean, you know, this is this this, this is not a new issue. It's been going on for many weeks, maybe months. Um, why now? Um, the, why now the GPHC have decided to to respond? There's been much uncertainty uh, um, in the meantime about the GPHC's position on this. They they have remained pretty quiet, um, particularly in the early days of uh, you know, occupational. Infections, not just you know, this is this is this is an issue that's affected all kinds of industries, not just pharmacy, of course. But um, you know, the GP, GBHC hasn't uh, solidified or cemented its 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 position on this. We would have liked to have known a bit a bit earlier, um, and you know, um, they could have moved earlier on it. That, that's basically the point. So um, because of that, I, I I kind of just slid it into to bad week uh, for them. Um, and uh, the impression was the impression that we had of the GPHC was that they would, because of the silence and because of the lack of a response, it wasn't doing anything. It was hesitant. It was a bit uncertain. That, that, that was the kind of impression we got. Not great for a, for a regulator. Um, we all know that pharmacy teams have been working under, uh, you know, not just pressurised conditions, but treacherous conditions. You know, they're on the front line. A lack of quality PPE, putting their lives on the line. Um, so I, I think it was really important, uh, you know, at an early stage that the GPHC responded to this and, and, and at least made their position clear and got on top of this. Um, and perhaps if employers had um, had a chance to sort of had, at least knew what the GPHC's um, position was on this, perhaps, you know, there, there would have been a bit more clarity. Perhaps it would have gone some way to sort of providing a bit more of a safeguard for, for pharmacy teams. So I just think... Um, you know, not a great week for the GPHC. Great, great intention, but the timing puts it for me into a, into a bit of a bad week. It reminds me of that story about a, a very fat Welsh international prop forward who committed a very late tackle on someone. And the referee said to him, that tackle is late. And the prop forward said, I got there as quickly as I could. So GPHC got there in the end, maybe, Neil. But Yes, yeah, yeah got there in the end. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes, yeah. Could have got, could have been a bit more prompt. Um, Absolutely. A bit more certainty. Yeah, no, fair enough. Uh, Arthur, who's had a bad week for you? A uh, bad week for me is the news that Predale tablets are to be discontinued from April. Um, they're the, obviously, they're the, they're the first line lithium product for patients with bipolar disorder and have a number of other indications. Um uh, the manufacturer, Essential Pharma, the, the reason behind it is a little bit obscure still. The manufacturers say that they're, due to restrictions on pricing, they felt it was no longer viable to keep producing the tablets. Um, we spoke to the Department of Health who said that they were in talks with, with Essential Pharma about pricing and hope to come to some kind of re resolution, but Essential Pharma appear to have walked away from those talks um, for reasons that are as yet unclear. Uh, we have approached them. Um, it's important to note that there are other um, lithium tablets that are available. Um, we have uh, Liscanum and Camcalit. 
Um, so and every effort is being made to ensure that patients with bipolar are you know go, going to get their their treatment. But there's also the worry that um, we were talking about this, Richard, mm-hmm. that you know switching patients with this particular condition onto another medication has to be handled very delicately and you know poses it poses all sorts of, of challenges. So um, yeah, that's definitely some uh, an issue that that. Yeah, uh, pharmacists have already be, been in touch about that. It, it's This has to be handled so carefully um, and it, it's going to cause an issue on the ground and I hope that Essential Pharma and, and the DH can kind of get something sorted out because this has uh, the potential to, to cause that particular patient group and pharmacists uh, in particular who are caring for them uh, with some, some quite tricky issues. So we want a resolution there. I hope they get talking again soon like arthur said it's just the nature of the the, the medication people are, are stabilized on that particular brand and um it could cause problems down the line so yeah they really need to to find a resolution there um for me right bad week well for the pharmacy show um, um it's a shame this organizers have bowed to the inevitable given the covid situation and they announced this week that they were cancelling uh, this year's exhibition, which was due to take place in October, and it, it is completely understandable, but it, it is a real shame all the same. There aren't many opportunities in the year where the whole community pharmacy family comes together under one roof and you've got the chance to talk to your professional leaders and fellow pharmacists and exchange ideas and share problems and solutions and gossip and catch up with friends, have a selfie, get yourself up to date with developments. You know, it, it, it all goes on at the pharmacy show. We actually love being at the pharmacy show. We gives us a chance to talk to readers face to face. We've all chaired business sessions in the past. Rob, you've been heavily involved in putting together the business programme. So the good news is that the the show will be back again next year. But I know a lot of pharmacists and their teams will be uh, a bit sad, actually, and disappointed that there's no event this year. So it's a shame, bad week for the pharmacy show and indeed the sector as a whole. So, in our interview slot this week is Simon Diggs, Chief Executive of PSNC. Funding and contract negotiations with the government are at a, at a critical stage, so we were very appreciative that Simon could spare some time to talk to us on the pod. And I started by asking for his thoughts on the current funding situation. In the week that PSNC wrote to Joe Churchill making the case, yet again, for an urgent funding uplift and for money to cover COVID costs. So what exactly is the sticking point? Well, you know, this is a negotiation, Richard, and, and you know, we, uh, it, it is, you know, the, the information that we're getting from uh, community pharmacy contractors is that it's, you know, financially uh, very, very difficult indeed for, for many, the majority. Um, and that means that uh, you know, we have been collecting that data and been pushing very hard indeed for uh, an increase in funding to the the, um, the contractual framework. I mean, you know, when you look at just prior to um, COVID, uh, just after Christmas, we were still talking about 11,500 community pharmacies in England. Um, we're now talking about 11,400 community pharmacies, 11,414. Um, and uh, that, uh, that you know, reduction is, is going to continue. And some, some of it is quite high profile. We've seen um, some of the largest chains uh, talking about uh, the, the type of um, uh, realization they're going to have to do and, and reductions. 
Uh, and uh, we know that there are other contractors out there, smaller chains and uh, independents who are looking to uh, to, to close. And, and that is you know, incredibly uh, sad and not right. It's, you know, we need funding uh, for all 11,000, now 414. They are all valuable. They're all part of the network. They are all performing a, a service for their community, and we need every single one of them. So the so the 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 arguments that we've made to the minister and to the department and to treasury um, is to show that the the value that the network provides, but also through as much data as we can provide to uh, the treasury in particular. On uh, on how much pharmacies are being used, and the uh, PSNC community pharmacy audit that took place in July uh, has been a really valuable source of that information as well. I mean, I think what contractors well, here's what I think contractors are, are, are struggling to understand, um, given everything you said. You, you've had Simon Stevens and Matt Hancock promising right at the start of the COVID crisis to do whatever it takes, almost money, no object. Ministers have heaped praise on, on community pharmacy time and again for its heroic efforts during the pandemic. And Rishi Sunak's mother was a pharmacist, for goodness sake, um, for a negotiator. That, that seems a, a pretty good hand. So what's the missing card? Uh, there is no doubt that health ministers, uh, Joe Churchill, Matt Hancock in particular, have, are supportive, um, and uh, and you've seen that in the the messages that they've put out to the sector. And I, I genuinely think they're not being disingenuous. They are supportive of community pharmacy. Um, the Treasury and officials, of course, hold the purse strings, and that is where the challenge is. Um, and that is uh, a big part of of what we have to do is, yes, negotiation, but also interpretation of the sector, of the financial constraints that the sector is experiencing, of the value that the sector brings to community, to primary care, uh, to get that across to people whose role is not uh, in, a, in health, it is in money and economy. Uh, and as a country in two, trillion pounds debt, they are clearly uh, being uh, justifiably, I guess, um, uh, constrained in what they can provide. But we believe very strongly that we've got uh, a very convincing case. And, and there is no doubt that community pharmacy has had underfunding for years before my time. Uh, it continues. The contractual framework, five years, which in terms of the direction of travel, uh, I still believe is the right one. But what we've seen is the delivery of services, the delivery of, of, of along the route of that contractual framework, um, really faster than I think any of us anticipated as a result of COVID, and also um, without the inbuilt efficiencies that the contractual framework uh, alluded to and so we're in a position now as I said the pharmacy audit uh, shows a lot of that data as well we're in a position now where people are going to their community pharmacy first 
uh, and seeking uh, clinical advice, I believe that the, the numbers that we're seeing are over and beyond what we can reasonably expect through terms of service. Uh, and moreover, the, the numbers involved, uh, when you look at them in the round, <clears throat> are effectively saving thousands and thousands of appointments at general practice, thousands and thousands of visits to health centres, to A&E every single week. Uh, and we've got to get across to um, uh, Treasury via uh, the Department and NHS England uh, that this has a worth to them uh, and, uh, and we need to be paid appropriately for the, for the, for the work that we're doing. Do you have any red lines in, in this negotiation? I mean, you, you can't, I don't think, take the DH to court again. I think that, that, that doesn't work. And you mentioned in this week's statement that you're prepared to reject offer after offer. Um, so how do you, do you break this Empires. Look, we're the clues in the name. Uh, we're, the, we're the negotiating committee. We're not the rolling over committee, and we we have to, you know, uh, we we are representing every single one of those now eleven thousand four hundred fourteen uh, community pharmacies, and that means that uh, sometimes we uh, will not agree things. Um, uh, because it's not, we believe, in the interests of the sector as a whole to do so. And if that does mean, unfortunately, prolonging negotiation when I know that contractors need clarity on so many different business critical issues, um, uh, you know, I'm, I, I apologize for that, but that's not why we're here. We're here to try and get the best possible deal. And, and that sometimes takes time and we can't, and we don't always succeed clearly. But um, uh, it, I know how frustrating it must seem when, yet again, we are getting close to deadlines, we're getting close to rollout of different services, and there's still not clarity. And, and sometimes that's just because we have been unable to agree um, uh, things that are, you know, that are being proposed. Given that the current funding levels, in, in PSNC's own words, are, are unsustainable, just how perilous is the, the situation, the financial situation that contractors find themselves in at the moment, especially given COVID. And you, you mentioned uh, earlier that pharmacy numbers are beginning to slide. I mean, do you, would you see that, anticipate that slide continuing? Well, that's, that's our concern. You know, we, we've said before that we're seeing unsustainable uh, tactics by some uh, uh, contractors to um, to remain in business and that, that shouldn't have to happen. Um, uh, and inevitably, as things progress, we will see uh, uh, the um, uh, smaller contractors certainly telling us that they're, they're struggling, that they're, they're not covering the cost of capital, they're not being able to, you know, and therefore sometimes that we're seeing uh, worn out assets being unable to be replaced, et cetera, et cetera. You know, I mean, it's, it's a classic sign, and, uh, and and as a result, then you end up with reducing service levels to patients as a result. So, you know, it is a huge concern to us, and um, and rightly so. And uh, as you know, uh, a few days ago, I called for 
people to consider stopping um, certain services that were free. And, um, and I know that was controversial for some people. And uh, I received a lot of emails on that subject, uh, both pro the statement and against. Um, and, you know, this is not me trying at all to tell anyone how to run their business. Uh, what I'm trying to say is that this is about value. Um, and, uh, you know, if you do not pay for something, it is often the case that you do not value it. And I genuinely think that we've struggled with this as a sector for years, <clears throat> not just the blood pressure checking that I was talking about, which seems to be an increasing phenomenon from the emails that we're getting, but also uh, deliveries and, of course, uh, monitored dosage, dosage systems as well. And uh, I mean, you know, you take um, uh, take blood pressure checking. You know, if a if a GP, and this is not in any way um, a, critic a criticism of, of general practice or GPs at all. Um, you're a GP. You're sitting there, and you want to have the blood pressure measurements of one of your patients. There are only so many options open to you, right? You can um, you can get the person to come into your general practice and, and take it yourself. You can get the person to come into your general practice and get one of your staff to take it, uh, one of the practice staff. Uh, you can send somebody, or indeed go yourself, to the patient's home and take it there. Or you can persuade the patient to somehow acquire or purchase a blood pressure monitoring machine themselves, take their own measurements, and hopefully provide you with the right ones um, uh, by phone or email or whatever. All four of those options require effort, time, cost, uh, but certainly impact on the GP and or the GP staff. And therefore, they absolutely understand that there is a, a value associated with that. If you just say, go to your local pharmacy, get them to do it and, and phone the measurements through to me, there's no, there's no impact on me at all. There's no effort required uh, on the GP. And therefore, there's no um, value associated with that service. And what I'm saying is that we need to ensure that these services, which have a value to the patient, to uh, the local community, to the, to the uh, prescriber, they need to be recognized. Uh, and, uh, you know, the, and, and sometimes you, know, you have to draw a line somewhere. I think there's also a conversation to be had with uh, primary care networks, with GPs, with um, local authorities and others to see how you know, if they value these services, then that we can provide a worth to them as well. So it was it was starting a conversation. I appreciate that it was uh, a bit stark in what I was saying, but I do genuinely believe, and I've, I've been saying since I arrived here, as you know, that um, this role that uh, we do do too many things uh, for free, and uh, and there's been mission creep over the years uh, on on exactly that. I do understand, don't get me wrong, I do understand the difference between community pharmacy and NHS. You know, NHS staff are paid for their time primarily, of course, and it's different. Community pharmacy 
has to uh, weigh up uh, the bottom line. It has to ensure that it, it maintains the loyalty of patients uh, and footfall and, and and in order to do that, it sometimes has to go over above and beyond, and that's great service for the patient. Um, but that has a cost associated with it. And of course, it is balancing that activity with cost that I was trying to get across. So that was Simon Dukes there. Very interesting interview. I thought we covered a lot of ground. Uh, and indeed, we'll be releasing the full interview next week as a separate podcast part of our In Conversation With series. So look out for that. And elsewhere in the interview, we talked about where the contractors should have to pay back the £370 million in advance funding, what's next for the new contractual framework in terms of the service developments, and Simon also shared some thoughts on the right review. So a lot to digest. Uh, Rob, do you have any initial observations, really, from the interview? Um. I didn't have one observation, and that, that was just that I was thinking it probably um, relates back to our earlier conversation, actually, about the um, the current situation that pharmacists are finding with lots of people wandering in. Um, it's inevitable when you talk to Simon Dukes that, that the main focus is on the negotiations and therefore on the money. And I, I just wonder how much time is spent talking about what's actually happening in the real world that's not related to money um because that's a key question isn't it you know that the the reality of life for contractors and for community pharmacists and their teams has changed quite considerably as we've already discussed and some of that is a lot of that is just not not planned at all and i don't get a real sense from the conversations that that i have with uh, PSNC colleagues, you know, how much they talk about the philosophy of what we, what community pharmacists do and why they do it and how, what, how, what other people do impacts on them in an unplanned way. Uh, and I think that's a, that would be a, an interesting thing to find out. So I'm sure Simon is, is one of our avid listeners to the podcast and I, I'd be really interested if he wants to, uh, send a little something in and, um, tell us what, what, how much time they do spend talking about those things. I'm sure, I'm sure he might actually. And of course, uh, Professor Wright was very big, wasn't he, on the need for a, a shared vision and how policy development and practice development fed into negotiations. So, uh, yeah, that's a, that's a very good point you make there, Rob. And um, yes, Simon, please send in your thoughts. So now it's time for Good Week. And, well, shall I kick off with Good Week? It, I think it's been a good week for a, a former colleague of mine, Claire Morrison, who has been appointed as the new RPS Director for Scotland, uh, replacing Alex McKinnon. Now, I must say, Claire has had a fantastic career since being my deputy on Pharmacy Magazine uh, in the mid-2000s. Um, she's definitely gone on to greater things, mainly with the NHS up in Scotland. And I think I mentioned in last week's pod uh, her pioneering work in setting up the NHS Near Me video consulting service. But she's done a whole load of things. She's been very successful at all of them. I mean, she's got an MBE, for goodness sake. I am slightly biased, obviously, but she will be, she will be uh, brilliant, I think, in a new role at the Society. She'd probably even write up her own interviews in the PJ, and I, I think it's an inspired appointment. And, you know, with Claire up in Scotland and Ellen Jones, the RPS Director in Wales, 
you've got two extremely capable and talented young women in senior leadership roles. And I think that's very exciting for the profession. The stories I could tell, but I won't. I'll just say congratulations and a very good week for Claire, Claire Morrison. Uh, Neil, who's had a good week for you? Well, I think it's been a, a, an exceptional week for the continent of Africa, Richard. The continent of Africa? The continent of Africa. The whole continent. The whole continent. <laughs> the entire continent. And, and it's, you know, a, a, a very, very uh, important story because they've officially been declared free of wild polio. Um, uh, the World Health Organization have made that declaration. Horrible disease, as we all know, it has no cure. Uh, horrifically bends uh, children's limbs uh, into very, very nasty shapes. Um, paralyzes them for the rest of their lives. Um, for decades, as we as we know, health organizations, governments, uh, charities, volunteers, a whole raft of uh, of, of players, they have, have been working tirelessly to to. Uh, to fight this uh, horrible disease. Um, and four years after the last reported cases were discovered in war-torn northeastern Nigeria, um, the World Health Organization has said it's, the continent is finally free of this uh, nasty disease. So that's a, not a good week. That's an exceptionally brilliant week for, for Africa. That's a, that's a really good choice, Neil. I like that. Um, Arthur, who's had a good week for you then? Uh, depending on where you are in Scotland, it could be a good week for you if you're into NHS flu vaccinations. Yes. Um, so pharmacists in Scotland are allowed to provide flu vaccinations on the NHS in the coming flu season for the first time. But it's up to your health board to decide whether they want to use you. Um, I've contacted um, all, the, all, all the individual health boards. I haven't heard back from all of them. I've heard back from six, of which four had some plans to use pharmacies. And all participating pharmacies will, will receive a one-off payment of £250 and there's a flat fee of 8.27 per flu jab. So it's, it has to be a good thing for the you know, general uh, advancement of clinical services in Scotland. So good, good for them. Yeah, re- really good to see the, the flu service finally getting going in Scotland. Um, that, that's an interesting setup they got there as well. Uh, so yeah, good week up there. Uh, Rob, who's had a good week for you? Yeah, I'd just like to say that's a good piece of uh, work, Arthur, and uh, boo to that guy in um, Lanarkshire who didn't seem quite so keen. Um, right, so good week for me. Well, I can't top continent and I can't top flu jabs, but I think um, there's some data out this week which suggests not just a good week, but, a, you know, everything's relative, I know, but a good week for GPs. Uh, so we've got the details on their uh, their pay in 2019-2020. Uh, uh, global sums 3.78 million billion, uh, which you know bears sort of comparisons with um, pharmacy, but it's the rest of it I think that uh, that is where the uh, the eye-watering number sort of comes. So 3.78 billion in the global sum. We've got 1.5 billion as the balance of um, PMS expenditure. That's a different form of contract, so you can add those two together. Uh, we've got 800 million for premises payments and over 700 million. For the quality and outcomes framework, I think if um, if community pharmacy had a, a a QPS that was anywhere approaching uh, as many figures as seven hundred fifteen point eight million is, I think we'd all be laughing. But I, I, I'm sure they'll say it's not n- not enough. And of course, the money in the healthcare is never enough. Um, but those those numbers, I think, uh, very interesting to to see how. Uh, that's happening in in general practice and and to to draw some comparisons particularly uh, when you see those numbers continuing to rise and pharmacy as we know is is um currently negotiations ongoing 
stuck on the same money for five years. So that's another example of general practice, once again, more, much more valued than pharmacy can ever hope to be. Absolutely, Neil. Well, there are a heck of a lot of noughts in those figures. Um, mm. That sounds on the generous side to me, but GPs yeah. are used to having generous settlements. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, that might put, um, put Simon's negotiations into a little bit of context, I think, going forward. But you make a good point about, about value as well, Neil. So, OK, Rob, thanks very much for that. All right, then, let's go to any other business. Neil, you look excited. What, what, well, this is worrying, though. What's your any other business? Uh, excited and extremely irritated because uh, yeah. it's my, my old mucker, my old friend again, Mr Hancock. What's he done now? Uh, I should have my own... I could have one my own radio show, couldn't I? Hancock's Hour. He's surpassed himself yet again. Um, so we all know about the death in benefits scheme, the 60,000. We know about the apparent... Uh, oh, I forgot to include pharmacy and that. Oh, yes, of course you're included. That, all that kind of stuff. Well... He's gone, he's gone another step further. It's emerged uh, uh, that the families of NHS and social care workers who pass away from COVID, um, they will, if they get the £60,000, uh, uh, they will lose their welfare benefits if they receive this uh, payment under the COVID compensation scheme. Uh, so any recipients of that money will not be able to claim universal credit, housing benefit or pension credit. But they'll get the £60,000. So the government are giving with one hand and quite abruptly taking away with the other hand um it's quite frankly disgusting uh it's just it just it, i was gonna say beggar's belief but it doesn't really um i think about 540 frontline health and social care workers have died from covid19 uh, in england and wales since the pan pandemic started um and i would imagine that many of those uh, and many more uh, will be extremely Disappointed is probably not a strong enough word, but uh, it's just a, it's just depressing, isn't it? Depressing it's, news. It seems dire on the face of it, and you'd wonder yeah. like for how much they're going to save from that. Is it worth yeah. just how the impact it's going to have on families and just the bad PR for the government? Like Absolutely. it just looks so bad. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I hadn't heard about that, Neil. That that, mm. that is so mean spirited, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, that, that, that's really But it doesn't surprise us, does it? I mean, it's, no, it doesn't. You know, it, you're, almost, you're not taken by surprise by it. It's it, 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 a depressing thing. Sadly, you're right. I've got, I've got something. I've got a, a, a TV recommendation, actually. Um, and if you haven't seen it, you must catch up with Once Upon a Time in Iraq, which is a, a documentary series that was out on the Beep. It's available on iPlayer. Oh, it's an extraordinary piece of television. It, it's basically a, a, an unflinching account of the Iraq War uh, in 2003 and its horrific aftermath. But in the words of Iraqi civilians and US soldiers and journalists, covering the war and it, it's it's compelling it's shocking it's harrowing it, it's deeply disturbing in parts actually and it for a for a searing insight into the terrible realities of that war and then life under isis well it, it's not for the faint-hearted it's uncomfortable but my word i think it should be required viewing for everyone and it certainly made me kind of examine my own kind of thoughts really about about the war in iraq arthur you you watched it as well didn't you yeah remarkable television um like really just heartbreaking to see the the impact that the war had on people living in Iraq. I can remember at the time I was you know sixteen or so going on marches against the war, but not really. I mean we were so, sort of sold this this sort of image of Iraq as this just wild lawless place, 
and you watch it and it's like they were just I mean it was a dysfunctional society but they were just people you know with they, they, like people like us with like schools and hospitals and all this suddenly getting bombed all around them and then the aftermath of that you know ISIS flooding in to you know to fill the power vacuum just really this re- really remarkable television yeah. if you haven't seen it you have to watch so it. how did it change your perception of what I mean you mentioned Richard that it changed your well, um, your your view I think like Arthur probably suggested just then I think you know we were all sold it sold is the right word on the basis that it was a, a kind of moral war that this was you know removing a who was an evil dictator and you know improving life for all ordinary Iraqis and you know they they did the first bit uh, and the second bit just went from bad to worse I mean it it, it wasn't a was it a just war they just didn't plan for the consequences and when you see the consequences described as, as visually and as brutally and as emotionally by the Iraqi citizens, as well as the US forces who fought in the war and the journalists who covered it. Hits it, home, hits home. It, re- it, re- it really hit home. And um, it, it's not, it has more strength because it's, uh, it has more strength because you don't see, there's not an analyst or a politician really inside. It's all coming from the voices of, of the people who were there. And, and live through it, and that that makes it you know makes it all the more powerful. I thought, and because they spoke to Iraqis who initially welcomed yeah. the welcomed you know the uh, move to the, to uh, remove Saddam from power, and we thought this is going to be good for Iraq, but you know gradually just saw the scales fall from their eyes and what you know what they ended up with, um, really really powerful. Yeah, um, definitely worth a watch. Rob, have you any any other business this week? <laughs> <laughs> This week, Richard, yeah, yes, well, no, because this week, Richard, I have been mostly editing a magazine, but just in connection with that, I should therefore probably issue a public apology to my nearest and dearest. Um, normally, as you know, and as listeners to this will know, I work from home most of the time. And when you're working from home on your own, you can be as grumpy and as miserable and as stressed out as you can be without impacting on anybody else. And so I have to say, Monday and Tuesday, I was grumpy and stressful and it clearly impacted on somebody else because I got asked whether I was going to start to smile again today. So apologies, apologies to the current Mrs. Darricott for um, for earlier this week. That's what I noticed this week. Yeah, that's a very well-deserved apology there, I think, for poor Helen. It's hard to believe, Rob, you're bright and bushy-tailed looking at you. I have to say though, Rob, clearly you've had a stressful week because you haven't done any of your washing. Your pile of laundry <laughs> in the back there is, is just is piling over the basket. So you and Helen need to, you know, get on with that. Um, anyway, I think before he's not he's not joking either. There is there is a there is a basket there's a basket of ironing that's waiting for somebody else to do. I have to say no, don't. I didn't say that. What a way to bring us to an end of this week's <laughs> pod. Thank goodness the listeners cry. Uh, my thanks as always to, to Rob, to Neil and Arthur. Uh, just the usual housekeeping. The pod is available on the Pharmacy Magazine website and all your usual download sites. Just search for Talking Pharmacy. Don't forget to listen out for the full version of the Simon Dukes interview. We'll be putting that out next week. That'll be available on all our sites as well. But for now, thanks very much for listening. and We'll be back again next week. <laughs> You can do that. You can do that ironing now. Rob. <laughs> <laughs>